0: All right, once don't you grab your Bibles? I'm going to turn to Luke chapter 7. I'll introduce where we're going this morning and hopefully where we want to land. But before we do anything else, let's pray. Ah, oh, Father, just thank you that you are good. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your mercies that are new each and every morning. Lord, thank you that in and out of season, you're faithful. You're always faithful. Your faithfulness undergirds all that we are and all that we do. Lord, we thank you for your scriptures that are a foundation. They're a light unto our path. They are inspiration. They're food. You yourself proclaim that your word is its bread. It's the bread of life. And we pray that you'd come and nourish us. You'd feed us. You'd challenge us. You'd convict us. You'd do whatever you desire to do this morning King Jesus, for the glory of your name. And may we have open and receptive ears and hearts to hear what it is that you're saying to each and every one of us this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Luke chapter 7, we're going to pick up the particular account, a passage this morning from verse 18, if you want to turn there and get ready. But we've been in a series for the past probably five or six weeks now. I had a visiting speaker, of course, last week. But talking about the passage from Matthew 7 where Jesus gives us, as he concludes the greatest sermon ever preached, a final exhortation or a warning about foundations. Make sure you're building on the correct foundation. There's only two foundations. If you build upon his words, and he says you build by grabbing a hold of what he says and putting it into place, not just hearing, not hearers of the word and not doers, as James puts it. Not just hearing, but grabbing a hold of, really wrestling through where it's necessary and building our lives upon those foundations, then it is a foundation that will endure and last. And he says, all other foundations, there's nothing else. It's not this and some other things. It's this or it's sinking sand. And the storms will come. And not only will it fall, but great will be fall, And so that was the, the basis, that was the broad parameters around which we've discussed various issues that we find ourselves in the midst of in the contemporary society that we live in. My desire in the midst of all of this, as I said from the very beginning, is that we would wrestle through some of these issues, that we'd look at some aspects of Christ's perspective on who we are, as human beings created in this image, that we'd examine some of the secular, secularist perspectives and that we would indeed discover, which I hope we have thus far, that in the end there is only one foundation that will ever stand. Everything else is indeed sinking standard. Despite the way that we dress up the modern promises of our secular society, These old age empty philosophies, they're really nothing new at all and they take us to a path that inevitably leads towards ruin. On that encouraging note, how are we going to finish the series? Well, rather than kind of picking up all of these themes, you can go back and have a listen. I thought I'd bring it to a close in one particular way and give us what I pray and hope will be somewhat of an encouragement, picking up this major theme of the solid rock that we have in him, the foundation that never fails, as Hebrew puts it, the kingdom that is unshakable. Anyone thankful that we are inheriting, not just we will inherit, says, but we are inheriting. We're part of a kingdom that is unshakable. What a truth that is to stand upon. In the time and age we live, where it feels at times like everything that can be shaken is shaken. And if you read scriptures, you'd be hard pressed not to believe that the shaking will not only continue, but as Christ's return gets ever closer, will only increase. But there's an unshakable foundation in the midst. So, bear that in mind. Let's read this passage. Let's share a few things. Luke chapter 7, interesting portion of scripture here. Jesus' mission, uh, his Proclamation of the gospel has begun. In fact, we read, if you look at the the prior verses, he's gained all sorts of notoriety, both good and bad. There's considerable miracles being done. A a mother who just lost her only son has seen her son raised from the dead, which, of course, would cause somewhat of a scene. It says great fear was coming upon the people. They're like, wow, who, who is this man? What is happening here? And verse 17, before we get to 18, talks about the response The report of him being spread all the way through the countryside. And so, in that context, verse 18, chapter 7, it says, the disciples of John, and this is John the Baptist, there's many Johns that we read and encounter throughout the gospel story. So John the Baptist, without giving you too much background there, he was the man who was called by the Lord to prepare the way by his own admission, by Christ's admission, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way. Of the Lord, he preached out in the wilderness. He was an interesting guy, but he saw what we would probably describe in our modern vernacular a great revival, certainly a renewal. People coming out; they were getting baptized, they they were getting their hearts right in response to his message. If we need to prepare ourselves because the Messiah is coming, and so he's found himself gone from that place, and he's now in prison. And the disciples of John came to him. It's verse eighteen reporting all these things, being the miracles of Jesus, the fame of Jesus spreading all around. And John, this is interesting, verse 19, we'll come back to it, says, calling two of his disciples to himself, he sent them to the Lord. I mean, what are we thinking John's going to be saying here? This is the Messiah that he's proclaimed is coming. He's now hearing the Messiah is here. The dead are being raised. The, the gospel is being preached all the way through the region. His fame, his is notoriety, it's spreading. The fear of the Lord is upon people. Kind of seems like a praise moment, doesn't it? Praise God! He's here. He's doing what we believed that he was going to do. And yet, if you know the story, you'll soon discover or be aware that things take a very different path. So it says, grabs his disciples sent them to Jesus saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? So what on earth is happening here? How has John arrived in this place where this is the question that he's sending his disciples to ask? And when the men had come to him, being Jesus, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Now, Jesus doesn't answer them immediately. Verse 21, it says, in that very hour, literally the translation is, literally as they're asking the question, this is unfolding all around them. It says he healed many people of diseases. There was plagues, just miraculously healed, evil spirits, that people delivered of spiritual demonic oppression. And many who were blind were given sight, blind eyes opening. And as a response to them having seen and witnessed this and heard what Jesus was not only doing but saying. Jesus in verse twenty two it says, He answered them. He says, Go and tell John what you've seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them. Verse twenty three. And blessed is the one who's not offended by me. This is the word of the Lord. Interesting account. Interesting account on many levels. But I love this story for many reasons. Let me set this up this morning. Have you ever had something in your life that hasn't quite gone according to plan? Ever had one of those moments despite your best efforts and intention? Nobody else in this room. Need to have an altar call for honesty here. Well, my wife and I had one of those moments some years ago now, and um, we've both loved to entertain, but particularly her. And this particular point in our lives, she just recently started her first job as a teacher, working in a school environment that she loved. She came home one day and she said, "Andrew, I just decided I've kind of connected with the principal a little bit, and I've decided to invite him and his wife over for dinner." I thought. Okay, that's not normally what you do when you just start a new job, but great, let's, let's do it. Let's have them over for dinner. I mean, it can't hurt the career, right? You know, we'll see what we can do and put on a good show and try and impress them. So we've got the house ready and, you know, went the whole hogs prior to kids. I did notice that as soon as we had young kids, the concept of getting the house ready took on different uh, perspectives. It was just making sure all the toys were piled in one corner of the room. But we we went the whole hog. We had the house tidy, we had the fine china out, we'd set the table nicely, we'd prepared this beautiful three-course meal in honour and anticipation of our guests arriving. So they arrived, and we had a lovely dinner with them, we felt like we'd connected well, um, until the moment where it came time for dessert. So we'd had this, it it was all going well, until we were, I can't remember what the dessert was, but it was my only role for the evening was to serve the ice cream. Sometimes I need the ice cream out of the freezer and it's just really like you need a jackhammer to break this thing open to try and get it out there. So I was trying to engage in conversation and just slowly work towards retrieving some ice cream to place to complement the lovely dessert my wife had placed. The problem was, I think I was a little distracted, I was focused on other things, I was trying to have conversation in press and I got a little bit enthusiastic with the ice cream. And so not only did a large hunk of this ice cream fly across the room, but in the process, I'd collected a couple of wine glasses and various other utensils on the table, and everywhere, across the guests, across the wall, was spread the remnants of our meal, which looked something more like a crime scene than it did a fine dining experience. So, of course, I was mortified. They were very gracious, and we quickly cleaned everything up the best we could and and moved on. But you know, the funny thing in the midst of that was what could have been a moment of great disappointment, of great offence, of them storming out or never wanting to see us again, which was my fear. My poor old wife's going to lose the job over the ice cream. You know, she'll, she'll never forgive me. I'll never live this down. But instead, it became this moment of connection. It was actually an opportunity for us to go even deeper in our relationship and over the years, and they've since retired and moved elsewhere, but we connected with them another a number of times and never forgot that particular account, an adventure, where we redefined what it meant to share a meal with one another. It came back. It was fond memories, and it was actually a catalyst to deeper connection. Now, we live... In this fallen planet. And things don't always go according to plan. We don't always have the complete picture. And John the Baptist finds himself in one of those moments. He's sitting there in a prison cell. I mean there is some incredible things. That are going on all around him. And yet there's clearly something for him. That has not gone according to plan. And so he sends his disciples and says. We need to ask Jesus a question. Are you the one? I mean, what, what a question to ask. Probably only John the Baptist could send. I wonder how the disciples felt with that kind of a, a message. Hey, what does John say? Are you the one? Are you the one or is there another? Should we be looking for someone else? It was a, a blunt but a real a confronting question that revealed the depths and the core of what John was wrestling through. So I want us to examine this story and I want us to look at Jesus' encouragement and look at how it is in the midst of a world that is surrounded with stuff, seeing things not as an opportunity for offense, for holding on to things, but of moving in to a greater and deeper recognition and revelation of the king and his kingdom, of grabbing a hold, not of what he isn't doing, what we believe he is not doing but of what he is Does that sound all right all right three of us are keen let's go so number one here's three realities of this story that speak to me and encourage me and I want to bring before us this morning number one is the context The context, as we've said, is rather than praising God, as John hears these incredible accounts of miracles, of signs and wonders, everything that he prayed and believed for, that he was called to prepare the way for, and had done so well is happening all around him, and yet rather than praising God and joining in the chorus of others, declaring who Christ is and what he's done, he's instead questioning God. You think that's a funny thing to be encouraged by, but I'm encouraged by it for this reason. Because every time I read this account, every time I read any of the disciples or the heroes of the faith, the Bible never glosses over those moments of struggle and wrestling. It doesn't gloss over it. It would be easy just to leave an account like this out. Especially given that in a few verses time, Jesus will encourage those around them that of those born from women, he says, up until this point now, there was no one greater than John. In Jesus' own admission, he's saying, John is up there. You look at all the, the prophetic voices of the Old Testament. John is John is there. John is a man of great significance, and he had great impact in his ministry. And yet John is also a man who wrestled, a man who had a few struggles, I would suggest, like some of us in this room, like me and like you. We are real people wrestling through real issues and on this journey of discovering a real faith in a real God. So what do we do? See, that's the context in which we find John. And yet I want to encourage us with this response. See, what he doesn't do is he doesn't sit on his haunches in the prison cell, he doesn't have a little pity party, he doesn't wallow in a pool of discouragement, woe is me, it didn't end up the way that I thought it might have ended up, so I'm just going to sit here miserable and try and make everyone's lives around me as miserable as I possibly can, which of course is never any of our response, I'm just putting it out there, hypothetically. But rather than that, this is what he says, he, said, he grabs his disciples, he says, we've got to go and find Jesus. Here's what we need in the midst of this. I'm struggling and I'm wrestling. So go and find Jesus. Can you go to him and can you pour out on my behalf, my heart, my questions? And I love it because Jesus doesn't rebuke John's questions. He doesn't say, well, go back and tell John, you know, get over himself. Tell him to stop wallowing." And his answer is one of grace and tenderness And mercy so in the midst of his confusion he seeks for Jesus and that's got to always be our response if there's one thing in this past season that I've tried to encourage us because I've noticed that it's been missing not just in our lives but in my life in the lives of believers around the planet in the midst of all the other issues is that simple reality but okay What does Jesus say to us in the midst of this equation? Not just, what are the political things happening around us? Not just the countries invading other countries. Not just the pandemics. Not anything else apart from, well, hang on a sec. What does Jesus have to say? And I think it's one of the urgent needs, but one of the great gifts that we can do for other people like John. We can be the two servants who say, look, I know you're discouraged, but let's seek Jesus together. Let, let me, on your behalf, let, let, let's pray together. Let's find Jesus in the midst of what it is that you're wrestling through. Not just yeah, shunning people, but let's, let's find Jesus. Let's seek after him. So that's the context. That brings us on to the question. I mean, what an interesting question it is. John goes right for the jugular, doesn't he? He says, ask Jesus, are you the one? Are you the one? Or is there someone else? And I think it's fascinating for this, because if you read the account of John the Baptist, he was this man who not only was preparing the way, but he was the first one recorded in scriptures as he saw Jesus coming, even from a distance. In the midst of this revival, as people were coming, he saw Jesus. And he proclaimed powerfully and prophetically he saw something there and he said to everybody around him behold here is the lamb of god who's come to take away the sins of the world here is the messiah i'm not even worthy of untying his boot this is this is the one he is here this eternal mission that god had put in place before he laid down the foundations of the world it's happening right before our eyes Like he had this incredible reality and understanding and knowledge of who God was. Of the mission that he'd come to accomplish. So many other people missed it. Is it it an earthly kingdom? John says, no, it's not an earthly kingdom. He's come to save. He's come to seek and save the lost. And yet somehow in the midst, he's lost sight of that big picture. And all he can see around him are the prison walls that encircle him. He's gone from the big picture to a perspective of prison walls. Now, as an aside here, it's just an aside, We're not going to dwell here, but isn't it interesting that even though John had this profound prophetic insight, even him with this picture of who Christ was, he still didn't have a full picture of how everything that was going to play out would play out. There was, there was still some, and, and I think that's something for us to remember in a day and an age where you can't go 10 minutes without someone saying, you know what, I've got the ultimate revelation on this. Like, I am the self-proclaimed expert on everything the world has to offer. Like, we tend to approach every issue as, I've, I've got it. I've got it all sorted out, and everybody needs to listen to me because I've done my research, and this is the gospel truth on every known issue that mankind will ever encounter. What if we approach things from a different way, in humility, and just said, hey, I can see that there's probably something in there, Lord, let's talk this through. Like, I think, if, I think the Lord's saying this, and I found it so refreshingly useful in the midst of this season, both to first of all recognize that I don't have the answers. And if that's a surprise to anyone, then I apologize. But I'm happy to say, I don't have all the answers. In fact, often, I don't think... I don't feel like I've got a clue. What's going on? But he does. And I'm following him. And I've loved chatting and praying with and discussing through issues and things with other people. And I can't tell you how much the Lord has challenged me and encouraged me at the same time. Hey, actually, people that think differently, okay, I see that from your perspective. Okay, so that's that's an aside. We're not going there. It's a whole other sermon. But isn't that interesting that he had this profound picture of who Christ, the, the most wonderful proclamation, scripture and yet even he kind of was like well I wasn't expecting this and so again if if we're ever in that place we can be encouraged too because that's why we need each other to to um, keep us focused to keep us encouraged as we journey along so it's an interesting question and here is the response that Jesus gives to John as the disciples come, they see all the miracles. He says, go and tell John. Verse 22. What you've seen and heard, the blind receive sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have the good news preached to them. And verse 23. Let's look at this first and we'll come back to the other. It says, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Blessed is the one who's not offended by me. What is what is Jesus saying here some other translations put in there are, blessed is the one who for whom I'm not a stumbling block. I'm not something that you know it trips you over. The actual word there is an interesting one. The, the Greek word is scandalon and the word picture that comes with it is something that describes a trap that's used to bait in and lure animals. Fascinating kind of word picture that Jesus is is using a specific word and I would say this, that offense has this capacity always of trapping us into the immediacy of a problem. That's what offense does. So what Jesus is saying is that, John, you've gone from this place of a big picture, and that big picture is, is still happening. Go and tell John. It's still, but all this is happening. The kingdom's proclaimed. People are being raised from the dead. But we've gone from that big picture And something's happened to trap your perspective into being so small-minded that you can't see past the prison bars and the walls around you. I mean, what a tragedy for John, this man who'd come to proclaim the coming of the Messiah, the greatest moment in human history, and it's there, and it's happening all around John. And yet John is missing out Because his perspective has been so tainted and moved from that which he prophesied would happen himself. He saw it. He saw into it. And then all he can see at this particular moment is the walls of the prison around him. So offense has this way of trapping us in to the immediacy of the problem. We lose sight of the glory of what God's doing all around us. So what does Jesus do? This is fascinating. He could have pointed him towards Scripture. He could have said to the disciples, well, you know, go and give him a couple of encouraging Bible verses. I'd suggest you know, Jeremiah 29, 31. Let's go for some psalm. Give him some encouraging verses. He could have said, you know, said anything else to John, but instead he said, tell John what's going on. Tell him to lift up his vision. Proclaim to John that there is a bigger picture happening all around him. Tell John that he needs to begin to focus on what I am doing rather than, not, rather than what I'm not doing, which is trapping him in this place of offense. What is it then for us that can help us break out of the perspectives that somehow, somehow keep us narrow-minded? Well, there's a couple of things there, I think. First of all, it's letting go of the things that we believe have wronged us or disappointed us or hurt us. And it's this capacity as we let go of that to grab a hold of him and the glory of his kingdom. See, if we're honest, it's very easy for us to formulate a list of all the things that we believe God should be doing, especially when you're in seasons and times. You think, goodness me, what's happening In the the legal space and the governments are against us, it's very easy to think, well, there's pandemics breaking out, and there's this, that, and the other, there's wars happening. Like every everywhere we turn in the natural, we could easily develop a list of things that we feel like God should be doing. God, why aren't you here? Why haven't you broken through in this circumstance and situation? How come you're not doing more here? Like what what, what is you know, this all of these frustrations? and unanswered questions. And pretty soon if we go down that path of focusing on all the things that we believe God's not doing and we believe He should be doing, we're trapped in our own prison of offence and doubt. This has been a a season where there's been plenty of ruined dinner parties, plenty of unmet, unfulfilled expectations, plenty of things that haven't gone according to To the way that we perhaps believe they should have gone. And I believe our encouragement as we've tried to focus on the last six weeks. Looking at the glory of his kingdom. That is better. Jesus is better. And he's bigger. And he's stronger. And he's more mighty and wonderful. And I want to encourage us that Jesus is saying to us today. Never lose sight of what I am. Never lose sight of the things that I am doing. I'm still saving. I'm still healing. I'm still moving. My kingdom is still advancing. And the challenge for us, and this is why I believe that Jesus finished with that encouragement to John as he was in prison. As he says, tell John, this is happening. But blessed is he who will not hold on to offense. And I think Jesus is trying to reveal to John that the real prison that's kept him trapped is not the physical bars around him, but it's the bars of offence that he's allowed to reduce his perspective down so that he's missing the very thing that he was called to proclaim. You see, God is at work. God is accomplishing his purposes and plans for the glory of his name. But there's a simple truth that we cannot hold on to the offense at the same time as grabbing a hold of his kingdom. The two are mutually exclusive. And I don't want us to miss out. The greatest day for the kingdom is ahead. That's what I, I think Jesus is saying to John. Come on, John. You've got to break out of this prison of offense. You've got to grab a hold of, don't let what you think I'm not doing rob you from the reality of what I am doing. So what I want to encourage us if we can get the worship team back just to, to get ready or keys or something. You know, we, we've seen just the last couple of months and I'll give you a very brief version, just some incredible stories of what God has been doing in our midst. Some amazing testimonies. We're doing some more baptisms. We had some at the end of last year, but just over the last few months. And I'll keep these testimonies vague because they're not mine to tell. But I felt challenged this week as well because, you know, there's this kind of Australian thing at times, isn't there, where we're we're almost a bit self-deprecating. We don't want to get too excited. Now, you, you sometimes witness the most incredible thing you've ever seen, movie, whatever it might be. Someone says, how was it? I say, well, it wasn't too bad. It, was, it wasn't too bad. It just wasn't, wasn't too bad. We kind of push things down. And I felt challenged, you know, just from the Lord, even when we had Andrew here last week and I was sharing some testimony. He's like, man, you, you should be so encouraged at what God is doing in your midst. I think we, we tend to always look at what he's not doing, don't we? Or at the other things we'd love to see him do, which is a whole other sermon, having faith and expectancy furthermore. But we've had people who've met the Lord in the last few months from completely unchurched backgrounds. We had you know, a young lady who came out of the New Age, tragic events, um, turned her to seek for help anywhere she could find it, in their own words, literally everywhere I look, pointing me back to Jesus. Jesus grabbed a hold of me and he dragged me out of that into his glorious light. We've had a, a young guy from a Muslim background, never been to church at all. He comes here and um, baptised, walking with the Lord. Had another young guy just within the, the last week who grabbed this, particularly for, for those who have young kids who are into computer games. But he was playing a computer game and this random person just said, look, I've got to share a, a vision, just being given a vision, of hell and Jesus was there saving people from hell and he wants to save you. And this little boy on Sunday night, he comes and encounters the Lord Jesus Christ. We had 17 people last Sunday who were either first-time commitments or people coming to rededicate their lives to Christ. Now, I haven't even heard all their story. 17's not 1,700, it's not 17,000. It's not revival, like I'm hungry for more. But the challenge for us this morning, the invitation for us this morning, is where is our focus? There is a king and a kingdom. It's without end. There is a savior. He's still moving. He's still saving. He's still healing. And we have an opportunity to grab a hold of what he's doing. But it is going to cost us something. It's going to cost us the ability to hang on to our offense. It's like we close our eyes. I want to just lead us for a few moments. We've heard a sermon, but this is in many ways the most important part of the whole morning. How are we going to respond? I want you to pray, Lord, is there anything in this for me today? What are you saying? And you know, I don't think we ever pray that prayer and not have him answer it. He's always working. He's always moving. He's always removing. He's always recalibrating. And I have, I have that desire this morning to give us the invitation. I feel like the Lord wants to break us out of some prison cells. That there's offense, that there's, things that have caused us and our attention and our affection to become like the prison walls that surround us. Maybe it's unfulfilled expectations. Maybe it's dampened or damaged dreams. Things haven't turned out the way you thought they would. Maybe there's the questions of, well, God, where where are you in this? I, I just, it's not what I thought would happen. Maybe it's the swirling narrative that's around us, all the rubbish that we're just fed in so many different ways and sources and it's caused us just to be so focused on that. We're just offended about offense itself. Maybe it's a sense of being, feeling like you've been let down by others, like the last two years has just been one failed dinner party. I just end up with stuff all over me. Maybe it's things perhaps that you've done or you've said or you've not done. It's an invitation this morning for us, whatever that might look like, to lay down a fence. Blessed are those who have not held on to all of that stuff. invitation is that if we can lay it down as Jesus says to John just lift up your eyes for a moment just see who it is that I am glory and majesty and wonder just see and hear accounts of what I'm doing all around you in your city, your nation in the world God is at work Is it move can be enlivened enlightened, inspired pressing on to see more of his kingdom around us. So, Father, I really want to pray for us this morning, and that's my sense, that's the picture that your desire today is to come to cause us to look beyond whatever it is that's caused us to be small-minded. Father, it's been my prayer each and every week as we've journeyed through, just looking at the greatness, this foundation, this firm foundation, this everlasting eternal kingdom, the greatness of who you are. Lord, you've you've never called us to be small-minded people, but to lift up our eyes, to see, to see you, the King of glory, the, the God who saves, the God who heals, the God who restores, the God who's at work. But Lord, the same token, our invitation this morning is to lay down any offense, anything that we've held against you or others, anything that's weighing us down and preventing us from that perspective. So we want to pray for your mercy this morning. Thank you that it's your goodness that leads us to repentance. Lord, I pray that where forgiveness is needed, that it would be offered. I pray where, where there's frustrations, is the word, and just baggage that for some reason we're hanging on to because we think we're, this is my right, I'm entitled to this. Thank you that your encouragement is come to me and lay down your burdens. Your offense and your baggage is never going to serve you well. And Lord, I pray that we'd be a people always willing to do business with you. As the psalmist prayed, that we would pray, Lord, search our hearts and show us whatever it is in here that's not of you. Anything that's caused us to be focused within the four walls of the prison around us, rather than lifting up our gaze to see you in the beauty of who you are. I ask that Jesus mighty.